In case you are uh, visiting with us this morning or you've been away for a while and just now returning, you should know that uh, this summer we have been exploring in no particular order selected psalms from Scripture. Uh, The book of Psalms has supplied uh, to believers some of the best love Bible passages and we've been looking at a few of those uh, these couple of months. Uh, the collection of 150 poems that are either sung or prayed express a wide variety of authentic emotions of the people of God for God. These poems are God's revelation to us as He awakens us to His majesty and glory, but they are also words that we can use as we enter into private uh, devotion uh, or the gathered people worshiping uh, of God. I've chosen Psalm 34 this morning as a text for us uh, to consider. The historical context of this poem, as recorded in 1 Samuel 21 and 22, tell us that it was most likely written by David after a very difficult and life-threatening situation running for his life from King Saul, David flees to his arch enemies, the Philistines, seeking asylum. Even though just years before he had taken out their hero, Goliath, who returns for shelter. Sensing very real danger, David pretends to be a madman, acting like a wild animal, complete with scratching the fence post and letting saliva drizzle through his beard to where the king sends him away. And it is David then reflecting on the protection of God in the cave of Adullam, where he possibly writes this poem in celebration of God's deliverance. If you are able, I would like to invite you to stand in honor of reading God's Word, the 34th Psalm, the very words of God. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. Oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt His name together. I sought the Lord and He answered me and delivered me from all my fears. Those who look to Him are radiant and their faces shall never be ashamed. This poor man cried and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers them. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Oh, fear the Lord, you his saints, for those who fear him have no lack. The young lions suffer want and hunger, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. Come, O children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. What man is there who desires life and loves many days that he may see good? Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Turn away from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and His ears toward their cry. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil to cut off the memory of them from the earth. When the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. 
Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. He keeps all his bones, not one of them is broken. Affliction will slay the wicked, and those who hate the righteous will be condemned. The Lord redeems the life of his servants. None of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. The word of God for the people of God. Our Father, we come before you and we lift up your word and we pray that you will magnify it and would you shine your light, your illuminating light on the content and the words and the spirit. Would you open our ears and our eyes to see the wonderful things that are in your word. Would you place them in our hearts. And as we leave this morning, would you extend uh, the truth of your word to our hands and our feet as we love you and serve others. In your name we pray. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. There is something in us that is irresistibly drawn toward excellence. We can't help but gaze in wonder at a masterful piece of artwork. Our hearts are captivated by glorious strains of music created by a symphony. A holiday feast with chicken, burgers, steak, and ribs slowly barbecuing on the grill receives our emphatic praise. At least it receives my emphatic praise. A little side note, last night, my wife and I got to have Thanksgiving in July. That was quite a treat. We had everything, turkey, dressing, cranberry sauce. It was good. See, I'm praising it. I'm talking about it. Everywhere you look, people and companies are engaged in the passionate pursuit of excellence. And perhaps nowhere else is this more clearly displayed than in the arena of sports. Every player is in search of the perfect swing or the perfect shot or even the perfect season. Day in and day out, players push their bodies to the limit in an effort to sharpen their athletic skills. Some have even taken the pursuit of excellence to extreme by looking for shortcuts through performance-enhancing drugs and other ways to cheat the system. As spectators, we're also enraptured by excellence. We can't help but be dazzled as we watch U.S. athletes go for the Olympic gold or see Mark Gasol block a buzzer beater or hopefully... See Mike Miller drain three after three after three this year as he comes back home and hopefully sets records that the Grizzlies much need that outside shot. A baseball stadium in New York was recently at max capacity just to watch eight guys hit batting practice, also known as the home run derby. Why are we so drawn to excellence? I think it goes beyond just saying, well, that's just the way it is. It goes much deeper. And it's rooted in the very character of God. God is the most excellent, glorious being who exists. In Matthew, Jesus tells us, your heavenly Father is perfect. Ponder that word, perfect, for a moment. God is Perfection. His love is the sweetest and most tender love that has ever been known. It is perfect 
love. His power is both awe-inspiring and terrifying. It's perfect power. His wisdom, which infinitely exceeds all the wisdom collected by men and women through the ages, is perfect wisdom. He is perfect in every facet of His character. By being created in the image of God, we are actually hardwired for seeking excellence. You could also say that we are hardwired for pleasure. The problem is that because of the fall, we are born sinners who are dead in trespasses and sins. And prior to salvation, we were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasure, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. Those who are slaves to sin can't glorify God. They don't even want to glorify God. But it's even worse than that. God tells us through His prophet Jeremiah that in our fallen pursuit of excellence and pleasure, we have run far from Him and went after worthlessness and became worthless instead of excellent and pleasurable. Jeremiah goes on to say, and if you want to know, I think this is Jeremiah chapter 2, for those of you who would like to know. Jeremiah goes on to say, Be appalled, O heavens, at this. Be shocked. Be utterly desolate, declares the Lord. For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed out cisterns for themselves, Broken cisterns that can hold no water. They have left the fount of living water and pursued broken cisterns that can't hold living water. Sin is not that we are in pursuit of pleasure, but it's that we do not seek ultimate pleasure, enjoyment. C.F. Lewis writes, We are half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because they cannot imagine what is meant by the holiday, by the offer of a holiday at sea. We are far too easily pleased. In a fallen world, The pursuit of pleasure can be, very often, is dangerous. Quietly but honestly, I want you to fill in the blank of this statement. Okay? You don't have to yell it out at us, but just honestly answer this blank in your heart. If I just have blank, then I'll be satisfied. If I just had this, then I'll be satisfied. If you answer that honestly, there's probably something created in that spot. Creation is not meant to satisfy us. It's meant to be pleasurable so that we'll run after that ultimate pleasure that can satisfy our hearts. 
Only Jesus satisfies the heart. Money, sex, fame, ambition can never be our Savior. You know, this is actually a truth understood both by believer and non-believer. Have you ever read or watched the incredibly sad stories of those who are always seeking and never finding satisfaction? You've probably heard it said that insanity is doing the same thing over and over again, yet expecting different results. Sin is irrational. It's foolish. It shocks and appalls the heavens. And it is utterly wicked. By choosing sin over God, we are saying that it is better and more satisfying than God. This is insanity. And we need a cure. Thankfully, we have a solution provided for us by God the Father. The cure is Jesus Christ, God's own Son. Jesus was sent to live a perfect life of obedience and could have, if anybody could have, Receive the reward of pleasure and acceptance for His obedience. But Jesus does something unimaginable. Instead of claiming the reward, He trades it out for punishment and wrath so that we could receive His reward by our repentance and faith and love in Him. So after salvation, God adopts us as His children. And He gives us all the privileges of being sons and daughters of God. What incredible mercy He pours out on us. We are freed from the slavery of sin and the endless search for temporary and unsatisfying treasure. We are freed from our weak desires and are able to pursue pleasure with Holy Spirit power. What does it mean to seek after God? Believing that our fulfillment can only be found in Him as we are found by Him. How does one pursue the Almighty? Let's turn to our text, the 34th Psalm, and let's take note how David does this. In the 34th Psalm, I see six essential actions in pursuing after God. Six essential actions pursuing after God. Now, I wish I came up with these all on my own. I really do. It would be great. Uh, but I've got to give some credit to Sam Storms. He wrote this book, More Precious Than Gold, 50 Daily Meditations on the Psalms. More Precious Than Gold, 50 Daily Meditations on the Psalms. After this summer study on the Psalms, if, if you want to keep digging into the Psalms, because we've only touched on maybe 12 by the end of the summer, uh, here are 50 daily meditations, rich, rich, rich uh, devotion, private worship material as we dive into the Psalms. My wife told me if I bring a book, it makes an impact. So, there, there you go. The first essential action, celebrate God. Celebrate God. Observe the passion and intensity of David's worship in verses 1 through 3. David's worship, first of all, David's worship was voluntary. I will bless the Lord, he says. 
It was a choice. A decision of his soul irrespective of what others do. I'm determined to celebrate God. I'm resolved. My mind and spirit are fixed. They're riveted on Him. David's worship was voluntary. David's worship was also constant. David's worship was constant. He says, at all times. Not just on Sunday. Or for David, I guess it was probably not just on Saturday. In all situations and circumstances, at every possible moment of every possible day, not just when one feels like it, but even when life is a mess, worship God. You see, worship is not an event. What we're doing here is not the worship of our life. It's part of it. But worship is a lifestyle. So often we come out of duty. Worship is a chore for us. It's not the natural overflow of a heart that's been awakened by life in Christ. And it should be. It should be a lifestyle that we gladly enter into. David's worship was verbal. Verbal. V-E-R-B-A-L. In my mouth, David says, I will bless the Lord at all times. Then he goes on and says, in my mouth. You see, our spiritual relationship with God the Father because of Jesus is never meant to be just a private thing between me and God. We are to be intentional with our celebration of God. Whether in speech or song, David articulates his adoration for the Lord. Husbands and fathers, does your family, do your kids know that you adore and celebrate God? Christian, does your neighbor, your co-worker, do your friends know that you adore and celebrate God? People know what you love. People know what you are passionate would they say Jesus Christ? Think about this. If God's praises were at all times in our mouth, what place would be left for slander, gossip, complaint, or criticism? I know that so often what comes out from my own mouth is a reflection of my own heart. And that's a self-centered kingdom that I'm living for. Instead of verbally expressing my delight in adoration of God. David's worship was boastful. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Bragging, once again, this is kind of carrying off of the verbal, bragging comes easily to us. No one teaches us how to boast. So let's just replace ourselves and what we've done with God and what He's done. God is our boast. Brag on the Lord. Make much of Him. David's worship is contagious. Let the humble hear and be glad. Only humble people will enjoy hearing others brag on God because the proud want only to hear about themselves. Now that's interesting because when a proud person is talking to a proud person, who's listening? But if you're bragging on the Lord, 
They don't have to listen to you talk about themselves, so they're probably going to hear you more than if you were just talking about yourself. And then David's worship was corporate. David's worship was corporate. Magnify the Lord with me. Let us exalt His name together. As much as one might enjoy private praise, there is something special and empowering and encouraging in joining with others in the adoration of God. Jointly and corporately celebrating God in the community of faith is a non-negotiable when it comes to our spiritual walk. Our spiritual walk is a community project. It's not something that you're meant to do on your own. His body, the church, is a gift that He has given us in grace. Don't forsake that gift. Don't, re- don't forsake receiving that encouragement. But then don't forsake others by not giving it to them. Now if you'll notice in these, I guess, six ways that David celebrated God, there's personal praise. But then there's corporate praise, and then there's missional praise. All three aspects are woven together here. And our corporate praise is only going to be as powerful and effective as our private praise is. So as we're preparing Monday through Saturday night to come worship with others, then it infuses and it brings fire to the corporate praise, and then that corporate praise empowers us to go out and be missional. So all of these go with all of our areas of worship. Second thing, second essential action besides celebrating God is pray to God. Verses 4 through 7. David sought the Lord by crying out to Him in need and trusting Him alone for both deliverance and from fear and salvation from trouble. How does one know if a person is pursuing God in prayer? I think it's verse 5. It says, they glow. Those who look to Him are radiant, and their faces shall never be ashamed. The one who passionately seeks God's face will reflect the glory of the original. His joy will ignite theirs. Negative. People who look like they've been walked all over probably are not spending much time with their problems to the Lord in prayer. Thirdly, enjoy God. Enjoy God. Verse 8. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in Him. Why taste? Why didn't David exhort us to think or remember or some other purely cognitive exercise? Because, listen to this, God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in Him. Did you catch that? God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in Him. That comes straight from John Piper. I cannot take credit for that statement once again. Um, 
John Piper has written, I would guess this is his, uh, this is his epic work that he wrote 20-something years ago called Desiring God. Meditations of a Christian Hedonist. Now, you don't typically put those two words together, do you? Christian Hedonist. But that's what we're talking about, is desiring God. The imagery of tasting makes the point that experiencing God is pleasant and enriching to the soul. There is a spiritual sweetness and enjoyment to the knowledge of God. Could this be why there is a lack of fire and celebration in our private and corporate worship experiences? Could this be why we make little or no effort in missional living? Is that we do not enjoy who God is. Listen to the words of uh, again of C.S. Lewis that John Piper mentions in his book. He says, All enjoyment spontaneously overflows into praise. The world rings with praise. Lovers praising their mistresses. Readers their favorite poets. Walkers praising the countryside. Players praising their favorite game. The South praising their favorite SEC football team. C.S. Lewis did not say that. I added that. But the point is, we delight to praise what we enjoy. Because the praise not merely, finishing what C.S. Lewis says, because the praise not merely expresses, but completes the enjoyment. It is its appointed consummation. Commenting on this statement by C.S. Lewis, John Piper says, God is not worshipped where He is not treasured and enjoyed. Praise is not an alternative to joy, but the expression of joy. Not to enjoy God is to dishonor Him. To say to Him that something else satisfies you more is the opposite of worship. It is sacrilege. I would say, how on earth could we, as the people who have been awakened from death and blindness, given grace and mercy instead of punishment, have Christ's righteousness exchanged for our sinfulness, not explode with praise and adoration? For our king. A football team, a vacation, a position of favor, importance, and popularity, the ideal job, the ideal spouse and kids never has, never can rescue us from death. It cannot offer forgiveness for sin or gain eternal life for us. The silence of our praise for God is not so for those who have tasted of the Lord, but it's for those who only look without tasting. Taste and see and shout with praise that the Lord is good. The fourth essential action in pursuing God is to fear God. Verses 9 through 14. Fear God. Now, wait a minute. First, David tells us to taste God. 
and to savor His goodness, then turns around in the next verse and commands us to fear Him. Is He messing with us here? Is He kidding with us to celebrate and to enjoy? But then He says, fear? Not at all. You see, we must enjoy God and tremble at His greatness. We must rejoice and revere. We must both adore Him and fall on our knees in awe of His power and authority and holiness. Pastor and author and counselor Paul David Tripp tweeted just the following last week this prospecta of wisdom. He says, When the grandeur and glory of the Lord looms large in your eyes, the fear of anything else won't loom large in your heart. It's fear that defeats and displaces fear. It is only the fear of God in your heart that will crush the fear of man that resides there. It is only a life-shaping awe of God that has the power to put everything else you face into proper perspective in your heart. Fifth, we are told to obey God. In verses 15 through 18, David says, Obey God. The eyes of the Lord, says David, are toward the righteous, whereas the Lord is against those who do evil. God cannot take His eyes off those who love obedience and are passionate about purity. He gazes on them with tenderness and warmth and loving affection, watching every move they make. No less so His ears. He listens to every prayer, takes note of every groan, is pleased with every song of praise, is moved by every cry of anguish. Don't overlook the remarkable statement in verse 18 because it goes uh, contrary to all our instincts. David declares that the Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. The brokenhearted are convinced more than others that God is distant and remote and uninvolved. But it's the crushed in spirit who God is near to save and comfort and heal in their misery. The sixth essential action to pursuing God is to trust God. Trust God. The final paragraph in our poem this morning, Psalm 34. And the key statement in this closing paragraph is David's promise that none are condemned who take refuge in Him. Taking refuge in God is simply another way of saying, trust Him. But for what? Many are dismayed because God didn't seem to come through for them when they needed Him most. They laid, they laid hold of Him in their need and came up empty. May I suggest that, a God, that God appears not to deliver the good only because... We're trusting Him for things He never promised. We can't trust God to do things our way, according to our timetable, for our praise. 
We can't trust Him to manipulate circumstances to bring us worldly success or to insulate us from the hatred and ill will of our enemies. This isn't because God isn't trustworthy, but simply because these things are things He never guarantees. Well, God is trustworthy. God is worthy to be pursued. For what then may I trust Him? We can trust Him to be generous because He gives what is best. We can trust Him to be wise because He knows what is best. We can trust Him to be loving because He does what is best. We can trust Him to be good because He is what is best. Eternal security Guidance, forgiveness, satisfaction, full and abundant joy, pleasures that never end. He will never leave or forsake us. And we can know that He orchestrates every event, even the evil ones, to work together for our ultimate spiritual conformity to the image of His Son. I asked earlier if you had seen or read the accounts of those who eventually lose all joy and even their lives as they hopelessly search and never find satisfaction in the things of this world. Well, have you ever read or been exposed to the story of lives who found everlasting pleasure, satisfaction, and joy by abandoning their lives in the pursuit of finding real joy in Christ? Listen to these verses from Hebrews chapter 11. In verses 13 through 16, talking about from Abel all the way up to Abraham, the writer of Hebrews says that these all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, listen to this, they desire a better country. That is a heavenly one. Therefore God is not ashamed to be called their God. For He has prepared for them a city. And then later on in the chapter... Verses 32 through the end. The writer says, And what more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David, and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection. Some were tortured, refusing to accept relief so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, 
wandering about in desert and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. And all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised, since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us they should not be made perfect. It also does us good to read missionary biographies. Many left familiar shores knowing they might never return to their homelands. That they would inevitably suffer in terrible ways. That they would very likely give up their lives in service to the Lord and yet they still went. Adoniram Judson is the subject of a new biography from Vance Christie. Judson was the very first foreign missionary commissioned in the United States. He proved to be one of the greatest. In 1812, he set sail from America and arrived the next year in Burma. He would serve in Burma for almost four decades and in all that time return to America only once and only briefly. His great passions were to preach the gospel and to provide a Bible in the language of the Burmese people. Though it would take him six years to see his first convert, by the time he died, there were thousands professing Christ. It would take him many more years to produce a full translation of the Bible, but today that Bible is still in use and still a pillar within the Burmese Baptist churches. Maybe even some of the Presbyterian ones there too. He would write tracts that were produced in the millions. Burmese dictionaries and grammars that continue to influence the language today. He would shape missions all throughout the world and inspire thousands of others to dedicate their lives to missionary work. But listen to this. Judson suffered immensely through it all. At times, the reviewer says, his biography is almost too painful to read. He was married three times, seeing two of his wives succumb to illness on the mission field. His grief was at times nearly overwhelming. His third wife's health was so shattered that she only barely outlived her husband, dying in great pain at only 36 years of age. His three marriages produced many children, at least six of whom died in infancy to the great sorrow of their parents. During a war between England and Burma, he was imprisoned for 17 months. And for much of this time, he was kept in deplorable conditions, suffering all manner of brutality. Judson suffered intense pain in his final days, exclaiming, How few there are who die so hard. In the end, his body not given a proper burial, but thrown overboard in the middle of the ocean without as much of a funeral service or prayer. His life was marked by some highs, but also many great lows. He suffered greatly for the Lord, but listen to this. He counted it as joy. In view of David's exhortations, does it not appear that the passionate pursuit of God is the most sane and sensible, yes, the most satisfying and pleasurable thing anyone can do. God, would you show us